0: Right now, without question, our theoretical uh, interview of the day, Adam Posen with us with the Peterson Institute. Just terrific analysis of the monetary theory behind all of these historic events. Adam, I want to take the alphabet soup of aggregate demand, aggregate supply, Hicksian and ISLM uh, analysis and throw it out the window. What is the theoretical book of Chairman Powell?
1: Theoretical book of Chairman Powell has actually been pretty honestly stated by him, Vice-Chair others. First, you work on observables. You don't work on the stars like R-star or Pi-star. Wait till you see things. Second, that means that you do reactive rather than preemptive policy. Third, you focus on unemployment, but not unemployment as measured by U3 or U6, by labor force participation, by what really constitutes full employment, And fourth, that you're assuming that expectations are well anchored, Mm -hmm. not forward looking, they're not going to jump. You put those four things together, which he stated very clearly, and that gives you the strategy.
0: Adam Poston, what's so important here is the unknown and what what the confidence of reading history is, and particularly the 47 boom out of World War II with all that inflation, is supply comes on. We behave differently with excessive economic growth. What will be the nation's behavior given a 7% GDP?
1: I think the 7% GDP that's inherently going to be transitory is not going to have that big an effect, Tom, and I realize this is somewhat contrarian. We are, and this is, of course, what the Fed is betting on, which is that this is a one-time surge, the overshoot is not persistent, and the longer-term inflation expectations are not persistent. Now, my colleagues, Olivier Blanchard Larry Summers, are emphasizing two things. First, That the inflation is going to be pretty high as a result of this and second that the feds ability to ride this out without raising rates and to raise rates without breaking a lot of stuff is limited and i think that's where the debate is not how much inflation we're going to get the final point i would make and this is my own point is that the savings rate i expect to stabilize at a much higher rate than it was before the pandemic just as the household savings rate stabilized at a higher rate after the global financial crisis. So we're going to see volatility over the next year and all this talk about pent-up savings, but it's not ultimately going to leave us spend, spend, spend.
2: Adam, that final point is really important because I think that final point and your view on that variable can be the difference between 5 6% GDP growth and maybe 7 and 8 And it can be the difference between inflation ripping higher and inflation, to your point, just being a 2% story. Adam, how do you come to that conclusion about where the savings are, how they'll be spent and how they'll be drawn down.
1: Thank you for saying that, Johnson, and my view is there's two components to this. I mean, there's still going to be a transitional dynamic, and there is pent-up demand in one key area of services, which is healthcare. and we're already starting to see that from the insurers. There was a lot of stuff that may or may not have been elected that was foregone during the worst of the pandemic, so I do expect a huge surge in healthcare spending, and that catch-up is going to be inflationary, because that's up to 20 percent of the economy. But when we think about the savings rate, if you look at the history of major shocks, you look at the history of the 20s and 30s, you look at the history of the global financial crisis, what tends to happen in the US and a lot of other places is the savings rate shoots up, comes back down, there's some messy dynamics, but you plateau at a higher rate of savings. Think about young people we all know, who twice in 10 years either have seen their opportunities go away or known people who had the bad luck to graduate high school or college in the wrong year. That kind of world scars you just as our grandparents became thrift minded after the depression. So I expect the household savings rate to be up a percent and a half, like to 6% when it stabilizes after this
2: crisis. Fascinating. And Lisa, I've got to say, this is probably one of the key variables right now for your outlook. And I don't think it's been talked about enough.
3: Yeah, the idea of spending and how much of this $1.7 trillion of excess uh, savings will be pumped into the economy. Adam, there's also a question of the frictions in getting people back into the labor market. And there was recently a Project Syndicate essay talking about how a lot of jobs got eliminated much faster because of the pandemic. And these are the low cost, low skill jobs. What are you for seeing. How much is the administration currently doing to ameliorate these frictions, to do training programs, to help it so that people, particularly on the lower end of the income spectrum, can get back into the workforce pretty quickly?
1: I think we've got to separate two things. You're absolutely right to focus on this issue, because this is what economists refer to as scarring, and this is the question both for inflation, but also for human welfare. How much of the workforce can quickly come back to full employment if the Fed lets it rip? And I would say it's a mixed bag, to be perfectly honest. On the one hand, what we're seeing is labor force scarring in the U.S. actually isn't as bad as we think. Human scarring, like with children missing school or people missing medical care, is very real. But the ability of low-income people in the U.S. when given the opportunity to find work is actually quite high. New research from Peterson, done by my colleague Simeon Jankov, and co-authors, Eva Zhang, have been looking at entrepreneurship and we've seen a surprising surge in entrepreneurship in the small business sector. There's more resilience there That doesn't mean people shouldn't look after them, but there is more resilience there and less scarring. That said, when you look at what's in the American Rescue Package or whatever it's called, the the big package that just came from the Biden administration and Congress, most of it is short term and some of it is going to be about trying to extend the lifetime of jobs in restaurants, in hospitality, in airlines that may not be there for the long term. And so it goes kind of the other way. We still need more investment, a couple percent of GDP a year, frankly, in what the Europeans call active labor market policies, helping to match people and make them more mobile to get to new jobs.
3: Okay, but this is a really important point, Adam, because it seems to be that you're saying this is irregardless of the pandemic. This is regardless of uh, the, the pandemic, irrespective of it. This is an important point. The idea here that the infrastructure plan cannot necessarily be billed as an extra stimulus to pull the economy out of the, sti- uh, out of the pandemic, but rather a shift in the economy and a way for the U.S. to win in a world that's evolving toward 5G and a, and a different technology. Is that accurate in terms of of what the US ought to be doing with infrastructure?
1: Lisa, I think you're right that what we've got and what I'm trying to get across is the infrastructure broadly, and that means such things as as heavy duty just building bridges, that means shifting the green composition and the carbon intensity of our economy, and that means the human infrastructure of making the best use of our people. That infrastructure is a long-term issue, and that is something that requires sustained spending things that people can count on, things that businesses can plan for. And that requires financing. That is not going to be paid for out of debt on an ongoing basis. Even if, in general, we would like to pay with debt for high return projects because of the amount we've had to spend for the for the uh, stimulus, for the pandemic recovery, we've got to look at how to finance that over the long term. If we get back to a world where we're confident there's not going to be a recurrence of pandemics and we have a process in the Congress that actually works, then you can start talking about these are net positive investments and so we can finance them over time.
2: Adam, that was a clinic and we always enjoy your time, sir. It's great to catch up. Adam Poston there, the president <coughs> of the Peterson Institute.
0: What we are seeing now, folks, and this is so important, is our team at Bloomberg Surveillance trying to get us the best guess on the moment. On inflation, it is David Rosenberg, acclaimed at Maryland years ago for the partition of inflation, the subsectors of inflation, the dynamics. And David Rosenberg of Rosenberg Research has been heated in his disagreement on the certitude of higher inflation. Mr. Rosenberg joins us this morning. David, in our comments before this interview, you went right to the heart of the matter, which is it's assumed supply will come on in a boom economy. You disagree.
4: Well, I actually think that um, the supply with a lag is going to come back. Uh, obviously, demand. Look, we had a, a demand implosion last year, a temporary bout of deflation, as the demand uh, cratered uh, You know, much faster than supply did. Now the su- demand is going to come back at a faster rate than the supply side will. But look, it's all very temporary. I don't think that supply chains have been... Uh, in disrepair for a permanent time period here. And, of course, we have the base effects that we're going to work off of in the next several months. And uh, inflation will probably get the 3.5%, maybe even a bit higher. Uh, CORE will probably test 2.5%. But, again, I think it's just uh, it's very temporary. Uh, And I guess that uh, my comment would be that, look, we've seen this before from the Treasury market, uh, um, that it often will shoot first and ask questions later yeah uh, we had we had ten of these huge hiccups uh, in yields from o nine 2009 to two thousand and nineteen. We had several inflation scares where there were some commodities and oil and Barack Obama's infrastructure package, uh, all the euphoria around the tax cuts. Uh, and really the big story for the last cycle was that core inflation peaked at its lowest level in recorded history. So the question is you know are you going to focus on, Uh, The trees are you going to focus on the forest past the trees. And right now, the market's focused on the trees. But I think the surprise will be by the end of the year um, how low inflation and corn inflation is going to be after we get through this temporary spasm.
2: Well, David, let's focus on the math as well. And I think you're the perfect guest to do this with. So we appreciate having you on the program this morning. Just the composition of the inflation basket and the dominant factors within that and how you expect those forces to evolve in the coming year.
4: Well, look, I think it's as uh, you had mentioned on the Philly Fed, uh, we're going to be getting uh, some goods inflation. Uh, we've already seen that already. Uh, the lagged impact of the prior weakness in the dollar, uh, the run-up in commodities, uh, although they're not a very big share of the CPI or the core, uh, they're still going to spill over. Uh, the services side is uh, going to be, I think, um, what's most important. And we've talked before about the dominance of shelter and the rental components. But that's really just looking at, the bean count on a bottom-up basis. The reality is this: uh, when you're looking at what ultimately drives inflation, uh, commodities, and even the things we're talking about today, like the huge spike in the Philly Fed uh, prices index. Again, again, that's manufacturing. Uh, I think again that's going to be very temporary. That doesn't tell you where inflation is going to be yeah, in 12 months uh, or in five years. Carry on, David. Sorry. Gonna the, yeah, I'm just going to say the key is the sure. labor market. And people tend to forget, there was a, everybody's focused on inflation. They don't realize, I guess, that the Fed has a dual mandate. And people look at this forecast of a 3.5% unemployment rate, you know, three years from now, and they think, oh, well, we're going back to full employment. Um, but that's not really what it's saying. I, I mean, you can look at a 6.2% unemployment rate right now and say, boy, that's not so bad. But you've got to remember, over 4 million people have left the labor force in the past year. And when you actually adjust for those people that left, uh, who could be unemployed if they came back into the labor market, if they don't find a job, the real unemployment rate is actually close to 9%. So just show me a cycle, an entire cycle, not two months, not three months, not four months. Show me a cycle of inflation that didn't involve real wages accelerating beyond productivity growth. That's what I'm waiting for. When that happens, I'll change my call. But I'm not changing my call because of Philly Fed prices Or because of what the crb index is doing it's going to come from the labor market
2: david your thinking is very much in line with the federal reserve then so when it comes to the labor market what are the data points you think we should be focusing on because the federal reserve ultimately is looking at the same place
4: look uh unfortunately they only tell you you know the u3 unemployment rate that's all they tell you when people jump on the bandwagon oh well look at this four and a half percent year end, three and a half percent by 2023 it's not that simple. Uh, you know, so I would say that let's look at the U6. Let's look at the broadest measure of unemployment. And it's 11.1% right now. Uh, you're not going to squeeze inflation on any durable basis with an 11% U6 unemployment rate. And so I'll tell you, if I see evidence that it's going to pull down towards or below 8%, that would be a telltale sign that we're a fully employed economy. Uh, if I start noticing Okay, and again, this is looking at inflation, broadly speaking, top down, uh, that we have to see real wage growth exceed productivity. That will put more durable upper pressure uh, on inflation, not commodities. And so really those are the data points that I'm looking at right now.
3: David, what's the concern among economists that they failed to get the depth of the downturn in the wake of the pandemic, than the depth or the incredible surge that we got in in the recovery? The idea here that we could see employment pick up much more quickly than we have ever before. I mean, how much does that change your outlook based on inflation?
4: Okay, well, you know, there's a lot of assumptions there that employment is going to come back uh, a lot more uh, than was you know previously thought and um, uh, of course employment is going to come back Uh, but you know the one thing that went up significantly last year at a time when we had the worst GDP number uh, since 1946 is uh, business spending on automation uh, and on software uh, and on AI and I think that a lot of businesses have realized that productivity actually boomed last year uh, in a horrible year for the economy. The question is therefore You how many of these jobs are going to come back? Does anybody really believe that everything is going to come back, you know, in one month or two months or three months? This pandemic is not over. The vaccination rollout is very encouraging. Uh, We're winning. We're really winning the battle. But, you know, I think there's a lot of assumptions. Look look what's happened in Europe, for example. Um, So I don't think that. Everything is going to come back. Things will come back, but in a staggered way. It's not going to be like a snap of a finger. Now, let's not make any mistake here. We have tremendous fiscal stimulus. If we didn't have that um, $900 billion package uh, that was signed on December 27th, I can tell you, just looking at the pattern of retail sales, we were heading into a first quarter GDP contraction. So right now, what is the vitality in the economy? When you think about it, it's really vaccines and fiscal stimulus. But you see, and the Fed's quite right on this, that the fiscal stimulus is all very transitory. So it gives you this initial jump in the data. Uh, but there's no fiscal multiplier here. Uh, and what I found very interesting was that when you look beyond this year's big boom in the economy, what did the Fed really do to 2022 and 2023 on its GDP
2: growth? No much. Uh,
4: it barely, it barely. So the Fed was there telling you, this, and he's right, this is all temporary. Now, keep in mind one thing. I know that the, the market right now is pushing the Fed. Uh, and testing the Fed and assuming that the Fed is going to be forced into moving rates earlier, a uh, full year earlier. But here's what I'll say because Powell spells this mm-hmm. out that everything in their forecast is predicated on policy remaining where it is for the next several years. They basically told you this is our mm-hmm. forecast based not just on policy today, but, but on rates staying and policy staying right. very accommodated for an extended period. So they're basically telling you that. You know, post this year, and look, we, we've had these economic booms before. Go back to 1984. We had the same growth rate in 1984. Go back to 1966. I mean, it's a very rare event to get, say, 6 to 7% growth in a right. year.
2: Incredibly unique. David, because- we've got to leave it there, unfortunately. It's always great to get you on the show. Come back soon, sir. David Rosenberg of Rosenberg Research.
0: I'm going to rip up the script here. I know Lisa and John want to get to China uh, with Dan Tannenbaum. He's truly our expert on sanctions. Dan, we have uh, Putin, Biden. They're 870 miles between Crimea and Moscow. This is really getting serious, this language, the genetic and moral code of sanctions. What sanctions are we going to see from the White House?
5: Uh, thanks, Tom. We, we've we seen sanctions as of late related to the poisoning of Navalny. There's additional restrictions that are about to come into effect to restrict exports of certain technology goods from the U.S. to Russia and an impending sanctions program next week related to election meddling. I think the question, though, that, that the market needs to be cognizant of, you know, if sanctions are designed to force a change in behavior with Russia, they've been extremely ineffective. If you think about where these programs began in 2014, trying to get Russia to return Crimea to Ukraine, which is pretty clear at this point is
4: not going to happen.
2: There's a consistent theme here though, Dan, whatever we talk about, and you're right to bring up the middle of the last decade, we all remember covering it, so little has changed. When it comes to Europe, little has changed too. The relationship, the energy relationship specifically between Germany and Russia as well. And that's a consistent theme when it comes to Russia, when it comes to China. Dan, what can the US do about that? And what do you anticipate they will try to do about that?
5: So it's unclear. There were some moves made in the last administration to attempt to thwart Nord Stream 2 and a little bit left over in the Biden administration. Although, frankly, Nord Stream 2 was nearly completed. So sanctions at this point would have been somewhat moot. I, I think trying to get allies more on side for human rights issues and trying to tie that back to the broader geopolitical agenda will probably be more productive than attempting to go after the energy sector, especially with Europe so dependent on Russia. Um, But it's pretty clear there was a missed opportunity on Nord Stream 2, where the U.S. really could have gained allied support to try and stop the efforts to complete the construction.
3: All right. So let's move away from Russia and go to China, given the fact that we're getting that meeting, that two-day meeting uh, in Anchorage. Is there anything likely to come of this, or is this just going to be rhetoric? Yet again, the Biden administration reiterating a lot of what Trump, frankly, uh, did and said in their approach to China.
5: Yeah, I mean, I I have this vision of some opening that's like Frank Costanza's Festivus, where everyone begins to air their grievances. I mean, certainly this has been an interesting week. You've got sanctions that were just applied on additional Chinese lawmakers under the Hong Kong Autonomy Act for the further crackdown on the election process in Hong Kong. Although you did have last week a win, so to speak, for a Chinese technology company where an injunction was filed in the U.S. court, that essentially reverse the restriction in investing on U.S. markets in that security. But then you also have Xinjiang um, and some of the human rights sanctions that are now being levied by the EU on top of what the U.S. has done. I think the the issue here is largely how will China respond? And they've built out their own sanctions programs. They've built out law that enables uh, penalties related to compliance with foreign sanctions, really U.S. sanctions domestically. But I think looking for some sort of common ground is probably the best path forward on some of these issues. But there's quite a bit of room between these parties.
2: Dan, these sanctions come out, these policies change, and you spend a lot of time with corporates, multinationals trying to make sure they're in compliance with them. But as you said at the start of this conversation, the ultimate goal for policymakers is to change behavior. And it comes back to a question I know you've been asked many times, and I'm sure increasingly so more recently. Do you think sanctions actually work?
5: So I do think sanctions work, but I think multilateral sanctions work, especially when you're talking about issues um, in the human rights space of China. And, And I do think this is where you could end up seeing a much stronger multilateral response to try and deal with some of the forced labor challenges in China. You just saw yesterday a few other technology companies have suspended the use of some production manufacturing companies. Due to the forced labor in Xinjiang, you may end up seeing kind of between multilateral response and actually corporate action where companies are voluntarily winding down production in a part of China that had been hugely productive for years, you could end up seeing some movement. But I think if similar to what we saw with the Trump administration, where the East was trying to go alone, um, the Biden administration is trying to return to multilateralism, which one of the most recent best example is, is getting around to the negotiating table a few years ago, Obviously, we saw that got blown up in the last administration, but I think multilateralism can work in these issues.
2: Dan, great to catch up, sir. Dan Tannenbaum, Oliver Wyman, partner and head of America's anti-financial crime.
0: Right now, too quick, Michael Darda with us with MKM Partners. For those of you on radio, you need to know that joining us this morning, Klaus on the left, on the couch sleeping, the Weimar honor, and Mr. Darda on the right as well. Michael, I want to work off uh, Greg Jensen's note at Bridgewater today on a core fear of our listeners and viewers, and that is that we will have this debt. We will monetize a debt, as we have since Roman times, and that will lead to a pernicious inflation. Is that inflation good for equity markets?
6: Well, Tom, I think we have the answer to that, uh, which is no. So if you're truly in an easy money environment, meaning higher nominal growth to the extent that you're getting higher inflation, discount rates will go up. We're seeing that. Uh, with higher expected inflation, and market P-E ratios, all other things equal, will go down. And you're seeing that, I think, most visibly in tech stocks and the NASDAQ 100, uh, which is falling on its face here, for lack of a better term, with higher market interest rates.
0: Will those corporations adjust to the reality of collapsing ratios?
6: I think so. I mean, I I believe a previous guest pointed out the fact that in a V-shaped boom, reflationary and then ultimately inflationary profits are also going to go up and so that is one way for p e ratios to adjust down but the other way is through lower equity prices and you know we're seeing a you know a combination of both so profits will be strong this year uh, but i do think that equity markets are going to struggle they've already priced in a v rebound But what's not fully appreciated at this juncture, in my opinion, is the potential for long-term interest rates to continue moving up, for inflation rates to go up. And then we're looking at the prospect of higher tax rates on corporations and capital gains and a Fed that's probably going to be forced to start tightening monetary policy next year, not in 2023 or 2024.
3: Mike, this is really important, and this leads to a big question, which is the weakness that we're seeing in the NASDAQ. Will it persist and can it bleed over into other areas of the equity markets that continue to be bid up and resilient in the face of higher yields?
5: It's a great
6: question. I think it will persist. I mean, the the forward valuations on the NASDAQ, and this incorporates the big rise already in expected earnings. Are almost 60% above what the average was for the last six years of the last cycle. And some are arguing that that can be justified based on where the rate structure is and, and where liquidity is. Uh, but we're even priced to perfection based on liquidity. And liquidity itself is 20, 22% above the pre COVID trajectory. Uh, and even adjusting for rates, which are rapidly reconverging with what we saw before the pandemic, um, you know, the the market's expensive. In particular, uh, tech stocks and the NASDAQ 100 uh, continue to be over their skis on a valuation basis. And so uh, some caution is warranted. Yes, the outlook is very favorable and earnings are going to be strong, uh, but these valuations are, are likely to continue coming in in our opinion.
3: All right. So that's about the NASDAQ story. How about the rest of the universe, the idea that there is more room to run based on the lagging gains that we saw lagging behind the big tech? I mean, do you see that being hampered as well at, at some point?
2: It very well could
6: be. I mean, even some of the so-called value sectors have had a you know pretty appreciable run here since last summer. <clears throat> so their valuations have come up as well. Uh, but I think that the the risks are far lower because the valuations are, are lower. So I think this idea of a rotation um, makes sense. But, you know, with higher valuations, the expected future returns also should be lower. That's the way things typically work. And I think... You know, where there is danger is in some of these markets that have been swept up into a speculative frenzy, Uh, not just the 40 percent of the NASDAQ 100 trading at a double digit price to sales ratio. That's certainly danger. But the SPAC market, these so-called Reddit trades, crypto. So these would be areas, I think, as interest rates adjust higher that we can expect to see a lot of volatility.
0: What do you expect to see from larger company, more traditional corporate officers—not people doing Spacs or Reddit or the rest of it—but a given toothpaste company or a given ball bearing company, whatever, whatever the sector is, Michael? What do you, how do you think those corporate officers will respond to this historic moment of say 8% GDP?
6: I mean, I think that the good news is that we are going to get a very strong V rebound in GDP and in jobs. Um, The other side of that is with that strong V rebound and some potential overheating, we'll have higher inflation and higher market interest rates. And so, you know, it's a push and a pull, the push from strong profitability and strong businesses. And then the pull uh, from higher market interest rates and lower valuations. So, that's what I think, you know, the, the the prototypical corporate officer is going to have to deal with this year.
2: Dada, you're always looking so smooth. It's great to catch up, sir. Go away. Michael Dada, Ken Partners, Chief Economist and Market Strategist.
0: This is the Bloomberg Surveillance Podcast. Thanks for listening.